If I have to admit to you, this is my first uh, snowmageddon amen. I've never been here on the day when, uh, when you happen to uh, have had either had a, uh, a snow cancellation the night before or uh, that things were being canceled. This is impressive. Uh, I had heard word that, hey, they still show up and they still show up in good numbers, and you do. You're here. Um, when I was uh, first in ministry, my first church was in Rock Hill, South Carolina, outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, I remember the first time they canceled church. It was so confusing to me because uh, my first eight years of my life, I had spent uh, living in Central Africa. Of course, we had no snow there. Then about the next... Uh, Six years of my life, we lived in the Chicago area, and when there would snow there, I mean, all winter long, it was just like packed snow on my street, and the buses, I mean, school buses ran, nothing stopped us, right? Then I lived uh, the next part of my life down in Florida, I didn't have any snow there, so it wasn't until I got to this uh, Rock Hill, South Carolina, and when, when they told me um, they were going to cancel church, I just had no folder for this, I just didn't understand and then they said, uh, yeah, and are you going to run to the grocery store and get food? And I'm like, I, I don't know. Should I? What, what does that mean? And they're like, it right, might run out. I'm like, run out of food? Like, what, what in the world? So now I, but now I understand. I've been here for a while. I understand we can freak out a little bit if flakes come down. But not these men. You guys are here this morning. Well, speaking of fear um, or other people's fears, we're looking this morning at Psalm 27 that addresses, obviously, David in the context of fears. And I've thought to myself, what, you know, it'd be great, we're not going to take time to do this, but to know, even around this room, what are your fears, or what have been your fears over the, the course of your life? I've been thinking about that this week. What have been taught, what, taught, what have been your fears the course of your life? And I, and I immediately thought of four events that uh, framed at different times this overwhelming sense of fear of fear. One was walking out of the, I was a junior in high school, walking out of the school after I'd taken my ACT for the very first time. I remember walking out. I wasn't fearful going in. Walking out, I thought, I have just messed up my life forever. Um, I, there's no way I did well on this, and this is going to set the course of my life. And that wasn't true. But at that point in my life, everything had been told to me, this will set the course of your life. And I walked out of there thinking, Wow, the course is bad. It's not going to look good uh, after what I experienced there. The next big fear I remember experiencing was uh, the first time I purchased a car myself without the help of my dad. Um, I was just fresh out of college, and I decided that the used car I had, even though it was running just fine, uh, was not good enough for me. And I remember going to this Ford dealership in Charlotte, North Carolina, spending... Uh, the whole day they are buying this uh, brand new Ford Tempo, black Ford Tempo. And um, I, when I drove it off the lot and drove back to Rock Hill and I, and I sat down in my little apartment, I was overcome by the, the, by the biggest wave of buyer's remorse ever. Uh, I mean, I just thought, Todd, there's no way you can afford to make this payment. You just made the stupidest move ever and there's nothing you can do about it. I was... I was literally undone, so undone that I did something that now I look back and go, how in the world did that even happen? I actually called an older man in our church, an elder, and said, I've made the biggest mistake in the world. Like, I bought this car. I can't keep this car. And he, I remember him saying, 
well, you just drive it back to the dealership and, and, and tell them you don't want it. And I'm like, you can do that? And he's like, sure. Um, I don't know if he knew that that was true or not. But I remember I drove back to the dealership in Charlotte, and I, and I said, I, I just I want to turn this back. And somehow, I mean, I think the guy just saw the panic on my face, and he took the car. And here's a funny thing. I've never bought a brand-new car since, ever, <laughs> seriously, ever, ever, ever. Like, I am so afraid of buying a brand-new car that I've just always bought used cars ever since that moment. When I was getting married, I was not, I didn't have any fear. I was engaged for so long, I couldn't wait to get married until literally 30 minutes before uh, the wedding ceremony started. My brother, uh, my only brother, uh, only sibling, was my best man. He's uh, five years younger than me. So he was uh, just about, he was a senior in high school at the time. I was about to get married. We're sitting, just the two of us, uh, just outside the sanctuary, waiting to go in. I didn't have any fear about being married. I wasn't overwhelmed by anything. I just, and I, mostly out of just being naive. And, and I remember, uh, yeah, I remember my brother, my senior in high school brother says, are you sure about this, Todd? And I said, I kind of looked at him, I said, yeah? And he goes, I mean, Todd, one woman, 50 years. And I'm like, you don't say it like that, man. I was fine until you said that. And then for the next 30 moments, all I could think of 30 minutes was like, one woman, 50 years, can you do this? And then, and then the thing that uh, I still find in fact, I, 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 maybe it's why I've stayed in the same house. I've been here in Memphis for 17 years, and I haven't moved, and I think it's probably the whole thing with the used, brand new car, used car thing. I just don't want to go through the process of buying a house. It, it's fun until you sit down in the lawyer's office, and then you start signing papers, and start signing papers, and start signing, and you're just, you're like, and they're like, you know, you think I probably should read over this, only there's 45 papers to sign, and everybody's looking at you like, well, are you going to sign it? You know, and you just keep going, and the, every paper that I sign, I'm just like, is that okay? And I'm looking at my lawyer, and she's just smiling, and I'm like, okay. And it was just so stressful. Of course, I found out at the end, the last, you know, the last paper you sign on that thing, I don't know if it's still like this, because I haven't done this for 17 years. The last paper you sign is the one that's the power of attorney, like that gives your attorney the right to sign for you. I remember signing that paper and going, huh, next time, can we put this paper at the front? <laughs> I'll sign this one that says you can sign and I'll leave and we can, we can move on from there. And then, of course, you get kids and that changes your fears in whole other directions. And some people have phobias. My wife is <laughs> terrified of flying, which always creates problems all over the place. I found out this week, I just read this week, that, that uh, Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, the great conqueror, had an had a overwhelming fear of cats which that would have been helpful for his enemies to know, right? <laughs> like, just throw some cats on the, on the battlefield and Napoleon will bail on that. Well, David here in this context is, is dealing with fears. And as we read this, as we read Psalm 27, I hope that you have in your mind, what is it? What are the things, maybe even right now, what is it that, that, that is overwhelming you, that's causing you anxiety, fear, that's keeping you up at night. Let's read Psalm 27. David writes this, um, of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Israel, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my mother and my father have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. There's, this psalm easily breaks up into four pieces that can even be seen there in the structure. And there's lots of different ways to label these. I've chosen to label them in a way that's pro- that progresses in thought because, again, uh, for David, in his psalms, there's, there's these emotions that we've talked about. He's, he's burying his soul. And so while he's in the context of fear, there's a flow of his prayers, there's a flow of his thought, his conversation with God that I think is helpful for us as we even apply this to our own lives. And the first thing is this, in verses 1-3, through three, that fear leads to remembering. Now it doesn't automatically, but here for David, fear leads to remembering. His first act after the context of his fears, we're not sure what they are, leads to remembering. If we were to read this in the Hebrew, this could easily be translated, verses 1-3 through three could easily be translated in the past tense. There's a sense here in which David is not saying what, what God will do. He's remembering what God has done. And he starts by looking at who God is. He remembers who God is in verse 1. He remembers God is my light. God is my salvation. God is my stronghold. He starts at a point of God's character. I'm going to, I'm terrified. I'm overwhelmed with fear. I'm overwhelmed with anxiety. I've been woken up in the middle of the night and my, my emotions, even my stomach, is. I feel sick to my stomach. And we've all experienced those moments, waking up in the middle of the night, overwhelmed with something we're facing. And, and David says, I'm going to start. I'm going to start by remembering who God is. He is my light. This is interesting to note. This is the only place in the entire Old Testament where God is called light. Now, it, it, it speaks of 
God bringing light, but here, the only place in the Old Testament, the only Old Testament reference where it's saying, He is my light. And of course, this automatically connects us to the New Testament because in John chapter 1, uh, when John is speaking of Christ, of the Messiah, he says, he talks about that the light has shone in the darkness and he's speaking about Christ himself. And then in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Again, this is important for us to understand. We're not looking, and David himself is not looking at a different God in the Old Testament and not understanding the Savior and Messiah in the New Testament. He, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is seeing this thing together. We on this side of the cross can look and say, yes, we understand. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He is our light. We, and it, this is in reference to darkness. We don't have to fear darkness. It's not just guidance that Christ is for us. He's actually light. He actually dispels fear. And he says, he's my salvation. He is my deliverer. Um, there's that great, uh, the whole passage, the whole Romans chapter 8, one of the greatest passages in, in all of scripture. But that sequence, when it, when it speaks of what God is going to do in our lives, and it says, if God has given us his son in salvation, how would he not give us all things? If he's already given you the most valuable thing he could possibly give you, how would he withhold any other grace from you that you and I truly need? It just doesn't make sense. David says he is my salvation. It's interesting to note, too, that he says it's my. He's very personal for David. Christ, our God, is my light. He is my salvation. He is my, my strength. And then it goes on in verses 2 through 3, and it talks about what God has done. Um, I love this. One uh, writer pointed out that when you look at um, verses 1, there's three things that God is. He's light, salvation, and stronghold. And then in verses 2 and 3, there's four things that are described of these adversaries. It says that they're evildoers, they're adversaries, an army, war. And isn't it interesting that even in light of being outnumbered, Even in light of being outnumbered, David is saying, you're my stronghold, you're my safety. I remember that you have done these things in the past. I know you have taken care of me. David uses words here in Psalm 27 that are very similar to Psalm 22. We didn't study Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm, meaning it's the words that Christ used himself uh, at the cross, and it also describes... uh, what Christ went through in his suffering. And David uses some of those same words here. It's, again, it's connecting us to Christ, um, that experience. And as we look at this and we think about our fears and remembering, there's something so important for us. Even last week uh, when Mike Stokey spoke, there's that, there's that phrase about remembering what God has done. And that's got to be our starting place when we're overwhelmed. We need to remember who God is and remember what he's done. Um, I don't know about you. Maybe it just takes living long enough. So I'm 53, and those of you that are older would maybe have more experiences. But I, I can't look back on my life and go, wow, God failed me there. I, have, I, can't, I can't find any real evidence in my, in my past that suggests that I can't trust God in the future. 
So I need to remember that. I need to recount it. And that's what David does here. His fear leads to remembering. And then in verses 4 through 6, this remembering leads into worship, which makes sense. If you're looking at who God is and what he has done and you're recounting those things, it's going to lead to worship. It says there, I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I want to offer sacrifices in his tent. Those things are direct connections to worship. But before we get into that, I don't want us to miss this, these two, the very first two words of verse 4. Look what it says there. One thing have I asked of the Lord. Think about that for a second. David says, one thing I've asked the Lord. Not multiple things. And before we look at what David's one thing is, I think we have to ask ourselves, what is your one thing you want from the Lord right now? At this point in your life, what is that one thing you want? As I thought about that, I, I was personally convicted because at different times in my life, when I've been overwhelmed with fear, the one thing I've wanted, you know, one thing is, God, help me pay this mortgage off. One thing is, can you do this with my kids? One thing, and or multiple things, but unlike David, oftentimes my one thing has not been David's one thing that he wants from the Lord. What is the one thing you really want? The one thing David really wanted from the Lord was to have the presence of God. He said, the one thing I want, it's the only thing I want, is your presence. It's to be able to gaze on your beauty. And you know what's great about David saying that, of all people, is David had a really tough life. You go, ah, he was wealthy, he was a king. Yeah, but think about when you all went through the study of David. I mean, his family was a was a mess. He had real struggles in his marriages. Marriages. Right there, that's a struggle. You got more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> his kids, he had, he had son, a son that tried to kill him. I mean, he had, he had real struggles with his own kids. He had, he had real struggles even in his friendships. He had real struggle. You know, yeah, he's a king. He had a kingdom. Things weren't just always pleasant and nice and peaceful in his, in his work. So this is a, this is a guy who, who truly goes through the ringer in life and has to even deal with the mess of his own sin that, that leads him into absolute disaster. The... the the, uh, you know, the, not only the taking of Bathsheba and the sin that that was, but then in trying to cover it up to kill Uriah. And let's not forget, Uriah wasn't just this some dude who happened to be Bathsheba's husband. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. It was one of the members of his small group. David took that guy's wife. And then tried, and then had that guy put to death. I mean, David, David had a lot to fear. David had a lot to ask of the Lord. And David says, the one thing I want is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Remember what it said in Psalm 16 that we studied a few weeks ago. 
In verse 5, David says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. What do I want most? What do I want my portion to be? I want it to be the Lord himself. I want it to be his presence. Or in Psalm 63, which we'll get to uh, maybe, maybe next spring, David says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I want to be in your sanctuary. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. I want you, because you are better than life. I don't need other things. This is the one thing I need, is God's presence. It's what we will see eventually in Psalm 84. The sons of Korah write this psalm. And you know this verse. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather be a servant in the house of God than to dwell and be wealthy and be full in the tents of the wicked. One thing. I want this one thing. He goes on to say, talking about the gazing of the beauty, he says, I want to be in the house of the Lord. I want to offer in the tent of worship. This is really helpful for us. C.S. Lewis, both C.S. Lewis and James Montgomery Boyce point out this, and I think this is very true, that in the Old Testament there was not this separation from the tangible and the intangible. It is true, brothers, that we can worship God anywhere. We don't have to have a physical sanctuary to worship God. That is true. But I would say, while that is true, let's not disconnect the tangible from the intangible. That's not what those of us who've gone before, those who have gone before in our faith have done. Instead, they've connected those things, and I think it's really important. And I think God is intentionally in worship, in corporate worship, given us tangible things in order to help us in our, con- in our confidence, in our, in our understanding the presence of God. So God has given us a baptism as a sacrament, like real water, touches your skin. And, and we're seeing something physical being displayed as something, so something tangible as intangible. That's so important. Communion. We taste. We taste real juice or wine. We put real bread in our mouths. Is that the actual body and blood of Christ? No, it is a, a, a symbol. But there's something significant about the connection between the physical the tangible and the intangible that's so important for our understanding of the presence of God. God wants us to to, to experience with our full senses that. Those of you that go to um, uh, Second Pres um, have noticed that our that our new pastor George has us doing a whole lot more movement in our in our in our worship services than we're used to, um, and it's always. Uh, you know, whatever you're, we have m- multiple different opinions in my own household. So if you f- have different opinions, great. You know, come to my house, you'll be, you'll be happy about that. But it's hilarious to think about, uh, well, let me say this, what's going on in our church. So rather than standing f- for just standing for hymns and just standing at certain moments now, um, we lift our hands uh, at certain points for prayer. Um, we stand for the, uh, the, the congregational prayer, um, which is the long one. 
Um, I've wondered, I haven't asked George this, but I wondered, I know George really wants us to be able to kneel, and he wants kneelers in the sanctuary, and I wonder if he's just going to make a stand until we buy the kneelers so we can kneel. But you can ask him that. Uh, <laughs> what's going on there? Well, when you read through the book of Psalms, you're going to see that there's all these postures for prayer. By the way, sitting is not one of them. <laughs> you'll find standing, you'll find kneeling, you'll find being prostrate on the ground. You won't find, I sat for prayer uh, <laughs> in Psalms. All that to say is, what's going on? That we would be physically engaged so that the tangible would be connected with the intangible. That's so important for us in worship. So important for us in worship that those things go together. I will say this, the, the, my daughter who's uh, in college, she comes home and, uh, you know, George has instituted this lift our hands during the invocation thing. And, uh, you know, she's 21, so you'd think that she would like it, right? Because kids supposedly like everything new. That's not true. Don't, don't try to change anybody thing with a teenager or a young person. Um, they get fussy about that. So uh, she's like, what? I, I don't like, she's like, Dad, I don't like doing that. I don't like that we make everybody do that. I think that's ridiculous. Everybody has to do that. I want to do it if I want to. I'm like, oh, yeah. She said, we've never done, we've never done anything like that before. I said, I said, oh, I said, does it upset you too that for years um, that we've made everybody like stand during the hymn? Because maybe you don't want to stand during the hymn. Maybe you'd rather just sit, but we make everybody stand. Is that bothering you? And she's like, that's different. And I'm like, no, I think it's kind of the same thing. It's just a posture of worship that's taking place. All that to say is, why do I think those things are important? David is looking here and saying, I go to the tent for worship. I'm in your sanctuary. These physical things are connected with the intangible. There's something that happens for us to be experienced in church. I'm assuming that this group right here never substitutes amen for Sunday morning and evening worship. I'm going to assume that. But if you happen to be the one or two guys in here that do that, please stop. <laughs> if you can only choose to go to one thing during a week, don't come to Amen, go to worship. I worked in youth ministry for 27 years. And kids would say, I, there's just, you know, there's so much going on. I don't know, you know, I've got to, I've got to, you know, we would, on Sunday morning, we would have Sunday school for high school students, then worship. And then in the afternoon, we've got small, group, small groups and then evening worship. And they would say, uh, some of them would say, uh, after Sunday school, they were just going, I got to get home to do homework. And we got small groups tonight. Oh, whoa, whoa. that's what I tell them every time. Listen, if there's only one thing you can come to on Sunday, I want it to be worship. Don't come to Sunday school. If you can't, if you can only go to one thing, forget small group, forget Sunday school. You're like, well, Todd, I, I, I get so much more out of Sunday school. I get so much more. I don't care. <laughs> that's just, that's, I'm telling you, be in worship. And you're going to see over and over again David saying, in worship, in the sanctuary, I understood these things. It was, Psalm, Psalm 73 does this brilliantly. When I got into the sanctuary of God, that's when I understood things. There's, brothers, there is something significant for us tangible and the intangible to be experienced in our sanctuaries. Uh, let's not miss that. Um, let's, like David, 
have our remembering lead to worship and it's corporate worship in the experience of the church. And then he goes on to say, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's what I want worship to be. I want it to be all about him. And it's one of the things I love about, about you all here, even the songs you sing. There is, a, there is a tendency in our lives, there's a tendency in our lives in worship to want to make worship about us. We want it to be man-centered. We struggle. Even, you know, some people say, oh yeah, the modern, the modern contemporary music in church is just so man-centered. I can find you some old hymns that are pretty man-centered. We just got rid of modern hymnals because we were smart enough to figure out, hey, you know, that's probably not a good song to sing. Um, what do we need to do when we go into worship service? We don't need to hear about ourselves. What do we need to hear? We need to hear about God. Alistair Begg's one of my favorite preachers. And I remember him saying one time he went in to visit a church because he was speaking at a conference. And he went in there and he said the worship leader got up there and said, how are you all doing? That was the opening thing. And Alistair Begg, as only Alistair Begg can do, is saying, oh, man, I don't want to think about that. How am I doing? I'm miserable. I got up late. I couldn't find the right clothes. I got in a fight with my wife last night. I kicked the dog. You know, he's like, I just, please, let's talk about anything but me. I'm here because I want to hear about God. I, 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 I'm a mess. I don't want to focus on me. I'm, I'm a disaster. I need, I need to focus on God. That's what David says here. I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Um, I, want it, I want to see him. I want to experience him. And he says, I will sing. I love the way you all sing on these mornings. And look at verse 5. Let's not, before we move on to the next point, look at verse 5. It says three things that are just so powerful. He will hide me. He will conceal me. He will lift me. Um, in worship, I'm reminded. In worship and gazing on the beauty of the Lord, I'm reminded he will hide me. He will conceal me. He will lift me. Well, Remembering, fear leads to remembering. Remembering leads to worship. And worship leads to prayer. Verse 7 switches uh, to second person. There's a, there's a respect here as David goes from, you are my salvation and my light, to hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Worship now has led to, I know who God is. I see him. I'm gazing upon his beauty. And now I have the, I have the uh, I'm, I'm allowed to speak to him. I'm, I'm allowed to, to tell him what I want. And he says, your face do I seek. And he's not saying I want some, he's not saying in that, I want you to give me wisdom. I want you to give me insight to who you are, God. What he's saying is, the Hebrew there is, I want to make my petition to you. It's not, I want to seek your wisdom. It's, I want to seek you. I want to make my petition to you. I want to see your face. And of course, when you read this prayer, verses 7 through 12, the verse that probably stands out to most of us is verse 10. Verse 10 says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me. And I think we, we feel the emotion of that. To be forsaken, to be turned away by your mother or your dad. And again, I don't know our experiences in here. Some of us had really good dads. Some of us didn't. Um, but that's a verse that immediately arouses emotion. And it should. It, it actually informs a lot of the prayer that David says there. Because he says things like, don't hide your face from me. Don't turn me away. Don't forsake me or cast me off. And it's the opposite that he's looking for. God, would you please be my heavenly father? Would you be the father 
that my father wasn't? Would you, would you, would you be that one? And of course, that's who he, know, he knows God's, God is. That's why he's saying it. I know you're going to be the one who never casts me off. You're going to be the one that I can only always trust. God as my perfect father. So David moves from, okay, I'm afraid. I'm going to remember who you are. I'm going to remember what you've done. And then I'm going to worship you. I just want you. The one thing I want is to be in your sanctuary. The one thing I want is to offer sacrifices to you. And now as I gaze upon you and I look upon you, hear me, Lord. Hear me as I cry to you. Here are the things. And it's an honest prayer, just like we looked at Psalm 13, bearing his soul, saying, this is what I'm feeling. And I would say to us at this point, how is your prayer life going? Because we can't go to the next point that prayer leads out in confidence if we don't look at our own prayer lives to begin with. How is your prayer life going? I would confess to you that up until the time I was 32 years old, even though I was in ministry, I had a very disjointed and pathetic prayer life. I prayed when I was afraid. And I prayed before meals, and I prayed occasionally in my quiet. I struggled, that, I struggled to have a daily rhythm of reading my Bible. I struggled to have a daily rhythm of prayer. And then I realized, or came to the, you know, finally owned it at age 32, Todd, you don't ever plan this, so it isn't ever going to happen. <laughs> so I'd feel guilty about my prayer life and about my devotional life, and I would say, i got to do better because I feel so guilty, and, and then I would never actually put, I would never make, first of all, an appointment with God. I just thought, yeah, tomorrow's busy, I can probably squeeze it here in the afternoon. And finally, at age 32, I came to the conclusion, Todd, you're terrible at having quiet times in the afternoon, and you're even worse at night. That's not even possible for you. Now, my brother, my brother, that's his time. That's his appointment with God. After dinner, after he spent a little time watching TV, he, he, he goes to bed early, and that's his time. And it works for him. Never worked for Todd Erickson. I realized the only thing that was going to work is going to, be, it's going to have to be first thing in the morning. And I was like, ah, I'm already getting up early for work. Um, and I, I don't, I got to work out. I just, that's my thing in the morning. I got to run. I gotta, and the only answer is I got to get up 30, 45 minutes earlier than that. That was the reality. That's when I first bought my, my first timed coffee machine, my program coffee machine. Because I'm like, that's, that's the only way it's going to, Todd, own it. That's the only way it's going to happen. Um, so some of you in here are, are, my, are my heroes in prayer. Some of you in here are literally men who have impacted my life through your discipline of prayer. Maybe there's some of the others of you in here who aren't there yet, let me just say, you've got to make an appointment with God. And you've got to be honest about when that is and hold fast to it. Secondly, you've got to have a structure for your prayer. I talk about a prayer journal that I have. <laughs> and uh, I know that young adults who I'm speaking to look and go, wow, that's so mature. Todd has a prayer journal. No, it's because I have like prayer ADD, right? I just can't. If I just sit down and start praying, I'm all over the place. I got... I, I'm, I can't think straight. Um, I have a prayer journal to help me focus in prayer because there's an immaturity that I have in prayer. 
I have a prayer journal that lets me know this is t- on this day, Todd, you're praying for these things. Because if I don't have that, I'm, I'm all over the place. Um, I oftentimes kneel instead of sit. Why? Because that at least reminds me, this is what we're doing right now, Todd. You're praying. <laughs> um, not only that, I usually have a sheet of paper that sits over here, and my phone is like way over there, so I can't get to it, right? And there's a pen next to this paper, because as I'm praying, I'm thinking of stuff that I'm like, oh, yeah, I need to do this today. Oh, yeah, I need to do this today. And I just, like, I got to write this stuff down. So I'm like, maybe God is just reminding me while I'm praying that I need to remember to do blah, blah, blah. So I, all this stuff, why is that? There has to be a structure for my prayer. Why do I have a structure? Why do I have an appointment? I need prayer. I need to sit in that moment every day. I need that rhythm every day. And so I would say to all of us in here, regular rhythm, like I said a few weeks ago, a regular rhythm daily of Bible reading and prayer is an absolute necessity for our lives. I don't even know how people function without that. We don't. I've experienced it myself. I don't function without it. And a regular rhythm of weekly worship. I've got to have that. If I don't have that, I'm, I, I can, I, my anxiety increases. My depression, my prone, I'm prone to depression. I'm, I'm prone to, to sin. All of that just unravels for me. Um, not that this fixes any, everything, but it certainly is a game changer. And that's what leads us to number four, verses 13 and 14. Prayer leads out in confidence. So I have to, in order to get confident, I have to have that. David says, I am, I'm going to see. I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He's not speaking about uh, when he's in heaven. He's saying, right, I know I'm going to see God's goodness to me here. And then he says, wait for the Lord. And I love that combination. He's saying, I'm sure, I'm sure that God is going to answer this prayer. Wait for the Lord and take courage. What does he put those two together? It's so important. He's saying, I know God is going to answer my prayer. I don't know how and I don't know when. But I am sure that God will be good to me. And and i got to wait. And that's the tension for us, isn't it? I hate that it says wait so many times in the Bible. I really do. It seems like there's two things that are said over and over again to us. Do not fear and wait for the Lord. And here we have both of them right here, right? But let me tell you, God never commands us to do anything that he doesn't give us the ability to do. So if he's telling us that we can choose to not be afraid, I'm telling you, his Holy Spirit can give you the power to do that. If he's telling you to wait upon him, the Holy Spirit can give us the power to wait on Him. And we know this, but let's remind ourselves again this morning, God's timing is absolutely perfect. It's absolutely perfect. It's not what we want, but it's absolutely perfect. For years now, even connecting this to worship, I, I, I tried to figure out, 27 years in youth ministry, what is it, what is it that causes what is the thing that will, will most likely impact children in a home in order for them to actually walk with Jesus? And the one thing I found overwhelmingly, by the way, overwhelmingly, 
is that the, the biggest indicator as to whether or not a son or a daughter will walk with the Lord in, in adult life is the parent's Sunday morning uh, uh, habits. If, if, if the child has consistently been in worship on Sunday morning, that is the most overwhelming indicator of whether or not they have been. And here's the key. This is what I always tell people. They eventually walk with the Lord. In fact, over 27 years of youth ministry, this is one thing that I saw that was just fascinating to me. The children of believing parents who truly sought the Lord, about 95% of them eventually walk with the Lord. The hard part of that statement is the eventually. Because some of them didn't do it until they were 32. <laughs> and some of them didn't do it until they were 40. But God is going to be good, and He's going to be good in His timing. The hard part is His timing. I'll share this, and, and, uh, and it's not a perfect example as we kind of wrap things up here. Um, I got caught all sideways with a son who was extremely talented in football, and I started to make an idol out of it. But then I tried to recollect myself and try to focus and go, okay, Lord, I want you to use this to the whatever. The Lord knew what was going on in my heart, and he had stuff to deal with me. But nevertheless, my son got to enjoy a, an amazing high school career, and he experienced some injuries, but he signed a scholarship to play college football. And then, he, and then uh, literally a week after he graduates from high school, he tears his ACL. Um, he's still headed there. He still has a scholarship. Um, and he's rehabbing there, and he's back on that campus, and he's having a tough go of it. And I remember actually kneeling on that field at like midnight one night. I left the hotel, went to that football field of that college. I knelt on the field, and I said, Lord, I want to, I want to see him here. That was my one thing, I guess. Lord, I, 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 want, to see, I want to see my son, victor I want to see Zach victorious in this, what he's faced, in his suffering. And I want to see your goodness. I'm claiming it right now. I remember driving from that, uh, that highway exit later on and thinking, you know what, someday I'm going to pass this exit and I'm going to rejoice instead of be upset. I believe it. I believe I'm going to see his goodness. And I waited and I waited and I waited. And then my son got another injury and he never played there. And then he left and transferred from there and stopped playing football. And I started to feel like, where is this? What's God doing? I, you haven't answered my prayers. I'm disappointed in this whole thing. And then something happened that I didn't expect. Zach was asked to speak at a middle school retreat where about 850 uh, junior high students, middle school students, where he was asked to, to be on this panel of what it means to go through suffering. And I was there in the balcony as, as Zach is speaking to all these 8th grade, 7th and 8th grade boys as they're asking questions about going through suffering. And Zach said this, The Lord dislocated my shoulder. The Lord tore my knee. And that was one of the best things that ever happened in my life because it brought me to himself. I remember sitting there and instantly understanding my own immaturity 
my son's maturity. And the goodness of the Lord. And I felt like God said, wait, Todd. Wait. Take courage. And wait. Brothers, I don't know what fear you're facing right now. But whatever it is, I encourage you even today, remember who God is. And remember what He's done in your life. May that remembering lead you to the sanctuary. To an actual sanctuary. Where you gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And may that lead you to an honest prayer. An honest prayer. Lord, hear me when I cry to you. And may you be able to get off your knees. And say, in confidence, I know. I know I will see his goodness. Oh, Lord, help me wait. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the truth and the beauty of your word. We'd ask that you'd seal these things to our hearts. Father, that we might see you and know you. Um, Father, may the words of our uh, mouths today and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.